Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. If I may propose a soundbite, there are a million and one things that could be discussed on just this novel alone in the franchise, and you could spend decades talking about so many minute details to the greater grand picture. So there are so many things that weren't discussed that could have been, but you know, there's only so many hours in the day and so many minutes in a podcast. I missed all that, Chris. Can you repeat that for me? No. Okay. Good morning, Slava. Hey, Jonathan. Good morning. How about this last episode of Dune? You ready? I am ready. Me too. I'm I'm very much been looking forward to this. Before we dive in though, what uh what's something you learned this week? What's something I learned this week? Well, it's a stupid thing. I learned that I Great. Good opener. You know those uh ads on Instagram you see when you're scrolling through, hey, I didn't know I was paying for, you know, three Netflix accounts. Yeah. Rocket money? Yes, but no. Same, same, but different. I was going through my subscriptions on my uh Apple oh, ID because I wanted to cancel a free uh trial of an app. Then I realized I paid for a stupid app, and the app was $189. Ooh. And I didn't notice it on the credit card, not because I'm, you know, Mr. Moneybags, but because we had a, some vacation expenses come through, and I just quickly paid it, up, paid it, didn't even think about it, and I was like, oh, well, I have this app that cost me $200, uh, but it's an app that Chad GPT's books, so and they, they have preset books. It's not, you can't, like, upload a book or give it a book to summarize, but they have a lot of business books and marketing books, and it gives you a 25-page summary of each book. So I might, I'll, Interesting. I'll definitely use it. But that's what I learned. But you, like, bought... Short form. It's not subscription. It's just the full purchase of the app is, was 190 Oh, no, no, it's a subscription. Yeah, it was a subscription, which I promptly canceled. Oh, good. 190 bucks, 16 bucks a month. Nice. Classic. What about you? That's a good question. This week has been a little less learning then I would prefer, but I would say that I learned new ways to work with some of my counterparts at work where how I like to work versus how they like to work is different. And so having to change my methodology, because normally like when I get an idea for something, I will write up a summary and then poke them with a message. And then one of them was like, hey, I don't have time to deal with this right now because they're on deadline, which totally fair. Uh, and I'm talking about something that's next March that we need to prepare for. It's like this big trade show. And they were like, hey, I don't have time to talk about this right now. Also, like, it'd be better if you just did like a kickoff meeting. And I was like, I mean, yes, I agree. But here's the thing. This is next March. And so just like coming to terms with how I want to work versus how other people want to work is different, which is okay. But it's a reminder that teamwork is more important than my preferences. That's what I relearned this week. Good lesson. Yeah. Anyway, we uh, I want to introduce some wonderful guests that we have today to talk to us about Arrakis, Paul, the Duke Atreides, and everything Bene Gesserit. First, we have Spencer, longtime reigning champion. Hey, Spencer. Hello. 
Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Slava. Hey, Spencer. And then we have Christopher, 12-time reigning champion of Dune or more. He can't remember the number. That's how much he reigns over Dune. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Slava. Hello, Spencer. Chris is coming in to uh, to take over the reigning championship here, Spencer, that you've been holding for so long. So I hope you got your britches pulled up. Yeah, ready ready to roll. Got to defend my... Got to defend my championship here. <laughs> Good. What did you guys learn this week, Spencer? I was part of a conversation with some coworkers. It was just interesting. Like they were kind of bantering back and forth, and they were teasing each other. It wasn't really work related. It was just kind of coworkers was talking about his dad had to move in with him, and the other coworker was teasing him. But it was just interesting to see how like small like teasing or maybe in essence conflict can generate conversation. And maybe an overarching themes is conflict can cause us to grow in relationship with each other um, if you go through conflict. I don't know. It was just more of a meta thing, I think, in my head, just watching people interact. What say you, Chris? One of the things I'd say I learned this week is that difficult conversations are important to have sometimes. An artist that I've been contracting to do some work for a project I've been working on, and I wasn't happy with some of the results that was being shown and so talking with them through what their process is and we both came to realize that there was a key piece of information that was not communicated between the two of us about what the desired delivered product would be for this and when we both realized that everything kind of turned around and the spirits of the whole thing were uplifted and you know so that's what i learned this week Cool. Well, let's dive into Arrakis and Dune and the hierarchical challenges that come when you serve an emperor. Chris, do you want to give us a quick summary since you're our Dune resident Dune expert, possibly ecologist? Well, I would say my older brother's far more well-read in Dune. He has read all of the books in the entire uh, franchise, both by Frank Herbert and his son. Oh, wow. Um, I myself have only read the one book and part of the second book. Most of the things that I thoroughly enjoyed in the first book were not necessarily in the first half of the second book, the part that I read, and so I didn't continue the series. But having said that, Dune is a science fiction epic written by Frank Herbert. It was originally written and published in December of, I believe, 1963 as a part of a serial for Analog Magazine. And then, because the first part of that was such a success, um, he continued the story, and those two serials became combined into the novel that was published in 1965. Oh, fun. The basic sense of what the story is is that it follows the noble family, the Atreides, in particular... At the start of the story, the son of the Duke, the Ducal heir Polytrades, as they get transplanted from their home world onto a new world, Arrakis, which has um, a special compound called Spice that has a lot of properties to it that make it very sought after, very desired. Everybody wants it, and it only exists in this one place. And so they've been moved there by decree of the Emperor and... There's sabotage and espionage, and the house gets betrayed, falls apart, and then we see Paul befriend the natives, to put it simply, of this planet, and then rise up to challenge the emperor. 
and claim the throne. Well put, Christopher. Good summary. Jonathan, let me ask you something as you read the book. I know this is your second time reading it through. This is my first time reading it through to completion. But as I read it, I was very excited. It drew me in. The writing was great. And I couldn't put it down. I even text you numerous times throughout the read far ahead of where we were recording because I just thought what was happening was so exciting and captivating. What what did you think as you read the book? Let's talk about how both of us reacted to reading the book for the first time or in your case, uh, second time. Yeah, actually, Chris is the one who encouraged me to read this back when we were working on a pretty hefty creative project that is kind of in limbo now, but we both still long to finish it. And I, I said this before the episode, but Chris has like four and O on me for influencing me to dive into media that I either A, wasn't aware of, or B, didn't plan on diving into. And I clearly, he's four and O. I've not yet succeeded in asking him to, or getting him to read things that I want him to, even though I would really enjoy it. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. As for the book, I remember really enjoying it, but it's been so long. I think I read it in 2016. That sounds about right. So yeah, like seven years ago, eight years ago. And I forgot how good of an author Frank Herbert was. And one of the things we covered in one of the previous episodes with Herbert's writing style was he only read, what was it, like four and a half years of sci-fi and was like, I can do this. And then just whips this thing out and just nails it, which is just incredible. And then uh, we'll get into this later. But Chris mentioned when I invited him on the show, he was he said he was reading the Analog Magazine series version. And I guess there were some changes made, not not big ones, but we'll get into that a little later in this episode, because I didn't know that it was originally released in a serial. And I kind of miss uh, that type of journey where, you know, people release parts of a story. And I think that even speaks better to Herbert's writing style, where he was able to keep your attention the whole time. And there's there's really no downtime, even though there's a good pace. Um but I think that it would be harder to be like, okay, how am I going to make this next three-page short story, like chapter, that I'm re- releasing on this magazine interesting and keep the people intrigued? So anyway, that, that's uh, that's how I engage with it, even, even more so now, knowing that it was released piece by piece instead of as a full-length narrative to start. Yeah, for sure. That's what kept me engaged, is the the writing style. As soon as we started interesting things are happening. And there's never a lull. Even if there's a short stop for a little bit of exposition or when Paul and Cheney are are getting to know each other, to use a euphemism, there's this little lull, but it, it picks up right right after that. There's always, um, always a sense of something around the corner. You, you never get to rest. And I really, really enjoy that. And that's a lot of the questions that we had too had to do with just some things that Herbert just let kind of sit there, right? Like, what is the Gam Jabbar? You know, what happens next after Paul takes over? I mean, we find out probably in book two, but he just leaves certain things hanging, but not in a way where you're confused and unsure of what's going on. It's a, it's in a way that helps you contemplate, oh, you know, or use your imagination, like what could be the next step that Paul takes, or what could the Gum Jabbar be? Yeah. In detail. So I love that about the book. Well, 
If you wanted me, I could directly uh, jump in and refer- ask to answer what the Gam Jabbar is. So in the appendices of the novel, which from what I've read is not a part of the original serial of the story, but in the published novel version of it, they have an appendix in the back of it, which has a glossary of terms. And under it, the section for Gam Jabbar, what it says, uh, and I quote, the high-handed enemy, that specific poison needle tipped with metacyanide used by the Bene Gesserit proctors in the death alternative test of human awareness. You got it. There's your answer, Slava. There's my answer. While you guys were reading it, what, uh, what stood out to you? I know, Spencer, this was your first time reading it through, so let's, let's go with you first. What were your thoughts, questions, impressions, likes, dislikes, hates, etc.? I had originally tried reading Dune, um, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago. And I just was not interested. Uh, nothing. It didn't grab me. I do a lot of audiobooks, so that's where I do most of my reading. And I had used an Audible credit, so I just returned the book. I was like, I don't know if I'll get ever get back into this. And then Jonathan told me a couple months ago, or however long ago it was, that you know they were going to do Dune, read through it. And so I was like, all right, I'll give it another shot. And then for whatever reason, this time, it really just seemed to grab me. Part of it, too, was I had watched the Dune movie that came out. I think it was last year, and having a little bit of reference from the movie and then listening to the book, I don't know, it just it just helped me, I guess, engage a little bit more with the story. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed it this uh, second time, well, technically first time through, um, but second attempt at it. Yeah, I, I loved it. I liked just all the political intrigue, all the, the backstabbing going on. Um, <laughs> like Big fan, huh? Big big fan. But it was it was just interesting to, to see how it all played out. I don't know if there was um, anything, I don't know, I just liked it all. The desert planet, seeing people having to transition from living on, I guess, maybe what you call maybe a normal planet to a complete desert planet and how they adapted. I guess maybe one one dislike that I had, and it kind of makes sense now, but to me it felt from one chapter to the next, all of a sudden we're, we're jumping to, to different scenes that all of a sudden something's happening with Paul's mom or something's happening with Paul. To me, sometimes a transition felt very abrupt. There were certain times where it didn't feel like it was being led into. It was just, oh, we're here, and we're interacting with this scene or this group of people. But that's just my own personal dislike. Overall, though, I thought it was a very good story. Don't you think that the jumping around, though, was similar to other fantasy novels that you've read? Like Sanderson, specifically thinking about Sanderson. <laughs> specifically. Also, um, Will White, where he jumps from like scene to scene. For, for whatever reason with Sanderson, I feel like I'm able to track a little bit more. Um, mm. Will White, yes, I think sometimes, too, I feel a little bit out of place where he's just jumping right into something in there. To, to me, personally, it felt like there was no like lead into it. So I just have to like adjust my perspective, maybe, of how, you know, whatever's going on. And I, I like Sanderson's writing. I feel like I'm able to follow him. I think Herbert wrote this back in the 60s or whatever it was. Just a different time, a little bit different writing style. To me, it just took a little bit longer to get used to. Now that makes sense. Chris, what about you? Because you read the, well, the Analog Magazine serials first, right? Then you read the book. No, actually, I think it's been such a long time since I first read it. I don't remember it exactly, but I believe it was sometime when I was in middle school. And similar to Spencer, I think I picked up the book, tried reading it, and couldn't get into it. And so I didn't uh, do anything further with that. 
And to be honest, I do not know if it was the David Lynch film or if it was the video game by, I believe, Cryo Entertainment. Okay. I think it was a ni- was it 1992 or 1993. Video game? There was a video game? Yes. So there's actually, I will uh, try and be really, really brief with this. There are two video games that were being produced kind of at the same time by two completely different unrelated companies, but I think they may have had the same publisher or something. I'm not entirely sure. The game that I had played was released first and called Dune, and it was um, created by Cryo Interactive and then published by Virgin Interactive. And it's this weird kind of like RPG visual novel, heavily story driven, but has a clunky kind of RTS game mechanic as well Hmm. tied into it. And the story, I mean, to account for the type of gameplay, the story's really it there there's a there's a family called the atreides there's a family called the harkonnen and then there is the emperor like that's kind of the similarities and it there's not much it doesn't really follow the story it's got the same characters the same names but it does its own thing to get to the same ending of paul being the emperor huh and it was a combination i think if i'm remembering correctly of that video game and then the david lynch film from the 80s that having gone through those, I then went and read the book and then really, really started loving it after that. What about it did you start loving it? What sparked? So you, you got you got interested in the book because of the video game and the movie. Then you read the book the first mm-hmm. time. What was the thing that, you know, sparked in you to read it a tenth time? Well, what really, really drew me into the book when I started getting into it was, I guess, the sort of like corporate, professional, personal court dynamics of the Atreides family. You know, of all of these high lieutenants, high trusted people that are within the family that have all of these different roles and responsibilities and seeing all of them interact with each other. But also underneath all of those interactions, having this espionage subplot going on, like, ah, one of us is a traitor. Who's the traitor? This is the most obvious person, but it can't be that person for obvious reasons. So it must be this person. It's the only person it could possibly be. Yeah, treachery within treachery. But it's not that one. Yeah. Seeing all of that kind of cloak and dagger play out underneath this very sincere and earnest, not even a veneer, but just like a foundation that this family has that's now being kind of put into question with each other because of the circumstances they find themselves in. Yeah, and I think that we'll pick up on that conversation a little bit in the themes. Religion and control and power and suffering to get things done, even Leto, the good guy, right, has to do some questionable things. And to get things done, I don't mean like, you know, conquer Arrakis or fix a tired, but to get things done as in to survive and to, you know, manure these waters he finds himself in. Right, and so, yeah, it was... All of the family dynamics of the Atreides that really struck me. And the reason why, when Jonathan said that you were reading this book for your podcast and you wanted me to come on, I was trying to think of, well, how can I offer something different or unique? And that's, I'd not actually read the serials. And that's why I was like, well, I'll start reading through the story again to refamiliarize mm-hmm. myself with it. And seeing some subtle differences in the writing 
you know, it's like it's basically like 90 percent, 99 percent the same. And what I assume are just editorial choices, mm. making some small changes throughout, I thought was also rather interesting. So it's like being able to see the an earlier draft of what has become the official draft. If yeah, you will. yeah, for sure. Changing uh, gears a little bit. Let's talk about how the book came to be. So it's a, for me, this is very interesting. So I've listened to a few Frank Herbert interviews to, to get these tidbits. And the, the genesis of the book can be traced book to an article that Frank Herbert wanted to write or needed to write. So he was an ecologist, a lecturer. He wrote a lot of journal articles for peer-reviewed journals. And he came across a pilot project by the U.S. Forest Service in Oregon where they were successfully managed the flow of sand dunes to prevent them from blocking highways. And his fascinations with the mechanics of the sand dunes and fluid dynamics and all, all those scientific stuff, right, that just fascinated him, that captivated him. So he started to accumulate vast amount of data for this article. And as he's writing this thing, he's like, oh, wow, this could be a story. But I have too much material for an article and too much material for a short story. So he began to build this world that we know is, you know, Dune and researched religions and went out of his way to find uh, ideas elsewhere to pull in and create the world that, well, all four of us have, you know read and love. So I don't know, that's just a, a tidbit that really I thought was interesting and him being, uh, you know, an amateur historian, how interesting it is for artists to find their muse, right? Something can come from left field and can be created into a thing, a book, a movie that captivates such a wide audience. Yeah, I, I, I found the desert world really interesting. I had no idea that that Herbert was inspired by this sand dune project. I do find it interesting how sand dunes move. There's um, some sand dunes here in Michigan, a place called Silver Lake, and went there as a kid and then went there as an adult. And to see how much that changed in just the span of like 20 years was just incredible. So I can see why Herbert would be fascinated by how sand dunes move and migrate. What about you, uh, Jonathan, and then Chris, since you both are you know, of an artistic type. You've tried to write a book. Talk to that, like like the genesis of artistic projects, hmm. and how, how seemingly they can come about in such a weird way. The way that you discover worlds like this, and I say discover because I think oftentimes it's less creating and more curiosity that drives you, where you start with a question like Herbert had, where what would it be like if there was a world that was basically a f just one big dune. And then he started asking questions and he said, well, that would mean that there's not a lot of water. And I'm just like kind of riffing off here. But you start with a single idea staked in a ground and then you build the logical framework from that point. Like, well, if it's a dune world, then there's a lack of water. If there's a lack of water, that means that people living on there have a high price of water and they value it, but they need water to survive. And it's just like this logical thread that starts when you begin creating, and it starts with a stake in the ground. I recently had a thought, literally on my walk this morning, about an idea that I might toy with, where what would it be like 
if you had some powerful being who was tied to a specific geographical location that they could never leave for longer than call it a week but they did want to they had to do items where they had to go to other parts of the world like and then it, this is just like a thought that I had a creative thought I had this morning where it's like okay what you create a moment in time a character a space a, and then the parameters around why there's a limitation and then your story just kind of blossoms from that so that would be my thoughts on on how you can create something so loved by people by taking a single stake in the ground and then addressing the unfolding logically of like well what would it mean if this place was a big dune chris what do you think one one thing i think is interesting going to dune particular is that being science fiction one of the things he'd use to build out that logical framework that everything else stems off of is his interest and understanding of ecology, which I know, uh, Slava, you've spoken up about several times in uh, previous episodes. And this is something that I think a lot of older science fiction did that we don't see very often in newer science fiction. Like when modern science fiction is to put simply, it has a lot more in common with the action of Star Wars rather than going to some deeper, just like, what if? What if X? Well, if X, then everything else unravels from that. You know, uh, it's like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, building out the entire universe off of just a simple uh, cake or muffin or something like that. And so having that sort of foundation of oh the understanding of an environment everything that surrounds the environment how things interact each other but not just the environment in a nature sense but environment as in a uh, tribe a culture and how all of those interact with each other and having that be the foundation that he kind of builds all of this story out of there's a billion places you go with it and he goes at quite a few billion places it seems yeah yeah for sure I don't know if that connected to what you were saying, Jonathan. I think it um, did. Yeah. No, that that that, that, that works. That's, that's good. Um, the question in general felt an awful lot like a, uh, where do you get your ideas from? Yeah. Tell me your secrets. <laughs> question. I didn't mean it that way. I just, what I, uh, Slava needs new book ideas. What I was trying to ask, I guess, at the crux of it is how weird it is. This, this thing that Herbert created came from an article he was supposed to write. And he he never pretended to be an author. He did read a lot of sci-fi for the five years that leading up to this. And then he's like, well, I think I got a story here. Let me try my hand at it. And, you know, he's talented enough to do that the way he did. But whether you're less talented or more talented than him as a creative, it's just interesting where ideas pop out of. I've, I've seen many uh, behind-the-scenes documentaries of movies and DVD commentaries on the movies. When an actor or a director gives you a little bit of insight as to where he got the idea, it always strikes me. It always strikes me as interesting. That's yeah, that's interesting. I that sparks an idea in my mind that I want to ask as a question to us. While you were reading the book, were there any quotes or like moments that you know Herbert wrote that really stood out to you or drew your attention or sparked your own creative idea uh, from that? Spencer, one quote that I that I really liked, 
And I think it comes from later in the book when Paul is head of the, the Fremen. He says it's, it's as easy to be overwhelmed by giving as it is by taking. I don't really know how to elaborate very well on this. But I think sometimes we, we can focus, um, like there's, there's got to be a good balance of giving and taking in, in your own personal life. I think if you constantly give and give and give, eventually there's nothing left to give and then you just get burnt out. But in the opposite sense, you know, in the case of, of the Harkonnens, you know, they take and take and take and eventually there's nothing left to take. And then the people revolt against, against the Harkonnens there. There's just got to be a good balance of power and giving and taking, I guess. I think that's something that, that kind of stood out to me near the end of the book when I, when I heard that quote by Paul. Mm. What about you, Slava? There's two that's kind of stood out to me. Uh, one of them was, I think, from the epigraphs from Prince, Princess Erlon. It's uh, once men turn their thinking over to machines, the hope that this would set them free, in the hope that this would set them free, but that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. And in my head, that sparked a couple of thoughts, particularly man's attachments to technology, right? AI and stuff like that. And I'm not making any kind of statements about the value or the good or the bad of AI. They're just certain people, and I would say vast parts of society, are attached to the technology that we have. And me too. I'm, I'm addicted to my phone. I'm, a, I'm attached to this thing because everything's in here, right? So in the book, what I got out of, got out of it, it, the the outlawing of machines that think didn't stop progress uh, in this world, right? They have shields, they have flying, you know, sa not saucers, but they have machines that take them from you know planet to planet. They have flying machines. They're able to space travel, and they do have communication devices. And take the Benny Gesserits, for example. They have advanced. In, in their human abilities and they want to continue to advance the rest of the, the humans in this universe. It did stop me for a few minutes and I was thinking like, well, yeah, people are attached to technology and if misused, it will have detrimental effects personally on you, even like the doom scrolling. Yeah. It's nice to be able to sit for, you know, for half an hour and just unplug and, do something that doesn't require a lot of thinking and just relax. But if you're three hours into, you know, tic-tac scrolling, that's probably bad for you. <laughs> as, as, as a simple example, like obviously Frank is, Herbert is talking about more important things uh, when he's saying that. So that, that, that's one that stood out. And one thing that I have to keep telling myself all, all the time is when... Halleck says, what's mood got to do with it? You fight when the necessity arises, no matter the mood. Mood is a thing for cattle or making love or playing balisette. It's not for fighting. <laughs> and I know for me, sometimes I'm just like, oh, gosh, you know, everything sucks. I don't want to do anything. And I'm just going to go and sit and play Diablo for four hours. But then I got to no, no, Slava, you're a 40-year-old man. Finish your work. And this adult. is, a, again, another simple example. You know, we can get into more more adult examples or more, you know, real-life examples, I suppose. But this is just a simple example. Like, no, finish your stupid job, and then at 5 p.m., you can get in Diablo for a little bit and just be an adult about it. This is a, this is a theme that's reoccurred through other characters as well in different ways. Um, there's a point in the story where 
Jessica's quoting or remembering a saying, I think in the, it was either in the OC Bible or in the pseudo-religious instruction manual they got in their Frem kit when they first find themselves out in the desert all alone. And it was, a. she said something like, there's a time for mourning and a time for, there's a time for this, there's a time for that. I don't remember the exact wording Mm -hmm. of it. But another spot where it came up was with some of the Fremen I believe Stilgar may have said something along these lines at some point in time, and also whatever the Fremen was that Thufir Hawat was taking refuge in during the giant siege of Arakeen in the uh, like in the cliffside of a cave or something. They said we we will do fighting in when there's the time of fighting, or I don't remember the yeah, exact yeah. wording, but there's this idea of like there's a time and a place for certain things, and you do the thing when it's the time for this thing, and not you know. Not when it's this other thing. Maybe one of the more striking ones was that you allow the baby to do all of its crying while it's a baby because water's precious. It needs to get all of its crying out now because it's we're not it's not allowed to cry when it's mm-hmm. older. Yeah, yeah. It's this sense of responsibility that's spoken about from Herbert's writing that I think is a stark contrast to how the world exists today. Where this this phrase that Slava quoted was, you know. What's the mood have to do with it? It's like, doesn't matter how you feel right now. You have to do a thing. If you're in the middle of a fight, you fight. If you're in the middle of, you know, making love, you make love. If you're in the middle of planning for the future, you plan for the future. And I think that it it's a stark contrast and it's a good, con, uh, not conduit, it's a good vehicle to, to use is like this royal family, this ducal heir to go, hey, it doesn't matter how you feel. You have a job to do. You have a duty. You have a responsibility. And I think any time that comes out today, it is a very stark contrast because society tells us, oh, just do what you feel, be happy, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, there's a time to do things. Like, Saba, you just said, like, there's a time to do your job. Do your job. Do it well. Do it with excellence. Like, and then you can do whatever you want. But, like, this is the, these are the hours for discipline, responsibility, and duty. Yeah, and that translates into bigger things. I used a, a somewhat of a mundane example. But that translates into, you know, taking care of your family, going to college, uh, dealing with sickness, anything that that applies to a lot of things in life, not just, you know, Slava wanting to play video games an hour early. Although that's also a good exercise in discipline, right? Chris, uh, were there any other like quotes that stood out to you during the, the reading? Well, there were a few that were mostly standing out because of how they differed ever so slightly from the analog magazine version to the novel version. But rather than necessarily go through and nitpick on all of these, (laughs) a couple of things that maybe more stood out was kind of tying into some of the foreshadowing that I've only noticed because this is, I don't know, maybe the dozenth time I've read this, is when the Duke Leto tells Paul that you know, he gives him the choice of like, do you wish to become a mentat? Do you want to continue the training? The very end of that scene, there's a brief moment where something's hinted at, and then they use the word terrible purpose. And I wanted to read this paragraph here, see if you might f- pick up on what something they say here. You'll be the Duke someday, son. The Duke said, a mentat Duke would be formidable indeed. Can you decide now or you wished more time? There was no hesitation in his answer. I'll continue the training. Formidable indeed, the Duke murmured, and Paul saw the proud smile on his father's face. The smile shocked Paul. 
It had a skull look to it. He closed his eyes, feeling an awakening of the terrible purpose within himself. Perhaps being a mentat is terrible purpose, he thought. But even as he thought this, his new awareness denied it. And I don't know if something jumped out to you when I was reading, when you were reading that or heard me say that. But when I was reading this, what jumped out to me is that way further in the story, there's a time skip. And during the part after the time skip where Herbert writes this sort of Paul looking into the past and trying to remember, oh, am I here? Am I in the future? Am I in the past? What's going on? Something that's mentioned briefly in passing is that they went to Arakeen to recover his father's body. And another saying that has come up is the shrine of his father's skull, that there'd be fanatical legions destroying the entire known universe while flying the, the flag of the shrine of his father's skull. And I don't know if yep. Herbert intended to use this point as kind of a piece of foreshadowing for that, but when I read that this time through, it just immediately jumped out at me as like, Ugh. I'm just imagining you kind of having this proud, heartfelt moment of like, I, my father is proud of me for something, and but then all of a sudden having this weird foreboding that he can't necessarily understand because he hasn't um, had contact with the spice yet. His awareness hasn't fully blown up into this uh, terrible purpose that <laughs> he, he keeps feeling yeah. and can't necessarily describe. Until he realizes, oh, I need to save humanity. Things are going really bad. But, oh, no, there's going to be, if I gain this power, all this terrible stuff's going to happen. Right. I only picked up on that when I read your notes that you dropped into our uh, episode matrix. I was like, ah, there it is. But before that, and I only read this book once, right? And listened to it an audio book, actually. So I didn't pick up on it when my first read through, but that's an awesome uh Awesome thing to point out. I think Herbert did that on purpose because everything else that he's done, even with the epigraphs and even making Princess Irulan the author of the epigraphs, was an, a nice, and I don't want to call it a twist, but what's, right. what's a notch less than a twist, right? It's a sudden surprise reveal and it changes the context of all of the epigraphs when you realize that she is the daughter of the emperor who becomes Paul's wife. At the end yeah. of the story. Untouched and unloved wife. What a what a what a life to live. Well, even the way even the way uh Frank put uh the words in Jessica's mouth where she's like, I hear that she likes to write. I hope there'll be a consolation for her. <laughs> <laughs> Woof. Yeah. I'm actually curious how what you thought about the way that the story ended in the novel, because I have mixed feelings of where I think it's simultaneously perfect. And strangely unfulfilling at the same time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I feel the same way. Probably, I'll probably articulate it differently than you, but I like sometimes when there's a mystery, I like that it ends with Paul winning. The last two chapters, specifically the last one, I was like, <laughs> finally, the good guys, you know, are winning, right? You know, that, that thing that you get at the end of the movie where the guy finally defeats all his enemies and Paul does. And just Paul's freaking, you know, the balls on him at the end of the last chapter. Like he, he puts everybody in their place, right? So that was strangely satisfying. Maybe not that strangely, but that was satisfying. Then it ends, and you're like, all right, he won, and it ends. And I know there's, there's a sequel, there's a trilogy, so we'll probably pick up. So I'm not that disappointed. But at the same time, and I mentioned this in a previous episode, I was like, what, no epilogue? 
not even like five pages on what Paul did next for maybe a year or two. No, no Cheney adventures. Cheney doesn't stab anybody else in the face. <laughs> I wanted a little bit, little bit of something, and then out of it would have been perfect for me. So that that that, that, that was my takeaway. Well, there's a whole other book that is an epilogue. <laughs> so, <right? laughs> it's a book. That may be part of the reason why uh, there is no epilogue. Fair enough. Yep. What about you, Spencer? What do you think about the ending? Yeah, I thought it was kind of abrupt. We see this final, I don't know, fight between Paul. I not gonna lie, I don't remember who he fought at the end. Fade Ratha. That's right. Uh, we see that fight, and then all of a sudden he's just like sta- Paul standing up to the emperor. I, I guess to me it just felt kind of abrupt from the whole book. Paul, well, the Atreides family dealing with the the fallout of the Harkonnen betrayal, or or whatever you want to call that, and then just them. Paul and his mom in the desert, meeting up with the Fremen, getting involved with them, becoming their leader. And then all of a sudden it was just like, that was like 95% of the book. And then all of a sudden the last, like you said, two chapters was these the final fight and then him standing up to the emperor. And so I, I guess I personally would have liked a little bit more of how that all like transpired, like how we got there. Yeah, and, and it did feel... Yeah, the, the revelation that Irlan was uh, the emperor's daughter and then becomes Paul's wife, I guess, uh, or whatever. It's a pol- political alliance wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that was a cool, like, revelation you were saying. But, yeah, it was just like, oh, okay, I thought we were going to get a little bit more on that. Yeah, overall, I mean, it, like, thought it was very good. Good ending, but just abrupt. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I was like... Why is the emperor and Salva and I talked about this in the in the last episode briefly? It's like, how does the emperor come to a planet and then not have like backup plans? And then also, and this is a question that is not answered at least in this book. What's the deal with the guild? Like, what do they really want? I mean, they they've got all this money, they're funding all these wars, but like they don't have a way out either. It was good. It was a nice like, hey, I'm going to wrap it up, but it did seem rushed like what lured the emperor into arrakis that he was like i need to go and deal with this like it just didn't seem satisfactory to me that was like you've got people for that go go deal with it like send them to deal with it what do you think chris you look like you have something to say i'm trying to remember how it went exactly as to the why the guild was involved in general they want to the spice production to continue because they're reliant on it for space travel and everybody is as well one other aspect is that anyone who's basically become, come into contact with the Spice for some undefined amount of time, they become dependent on it to just live. I don't believe they say exactly how long it takes for this to occur, but anyone who's had it for some amount, you need to keep having the Spice in your diet or you die. And I don't know if that's related into the Emperor's reasons at all, mm. but I believe... He knew, like, word was coming out that it was Paul who was leading the uprising, who was on Arrakis. He didn't want it to become known that the emperor did what he did, that he sided against a specific house and had them obliterated. And that gets into the whole uh, tripod of how the society is structured and there being a lands rod to offset the power of the emperor, there being the spacing guild, which require, which is dependent on the spice, and everyone's dependent on each other in some way. Yeah, the the emperor says something to Baron Harkonnen where he said, "I'm going to paraphrase, but you know, didn't you know that Moadib is you know Paul Atreides?" 
And he's like, no, he's not. And so the emperor reveals that he did gather this information, but it just felt like, oh, hey, here's a suddenly, you know? And then the, with in terms mm. of the guild and the space travel, I guess, and this has been my complaint on other books and other things, but the point didn't seem to hit home. It was like, oh, I think it's mentioned once, maybe twice, if that. Both the you need spice to continue living and the hey, spice is required for space travel. And so I think that unless you're really great at catching every detail on a first read, like I, I this is my second read and I didn't remember that, so... Um, yeah. So there's actually one thing I wanted to actually talk about, and it's related to Dr. Yui. And this may also, in some sense, tie into some of the subtle differences with the analog serial and the novelized version. Is after Yui betrays the Duke, when I was reading through this, there was something that he said, and the fact that this, I believe, was edited out from the magazine version into the novel, I find rather interesting because it kind of goes a little bit more into Yui's reason for why he was doing that or how he justifies it to himself. So after the Duke is unconscious and he's making a promise that he's going to save his wife and or his concubine and his son, there's one paragraph that I don't remember reading ever before. And Yui says to the Duke, too much is concentrated against you, Duke Leto. You must believe it. Most of the Chone Company directors resent your inclusion amongst them. The Emperor does not permit possible rivals to live, and the great houses who resent your easy ways. You weren't wise to refuse marital alliance, you know. And I don't think that paragraph exists in the novel. And I thought it was interesting because earlier in the book, they go into why the Duke is not married because it leaves the option open. And yet, leaves the option open for alliances between all of these different families. And I just thought that was an interesting thing that I'd noticed that that got edited out and what that sort of implication might mean. But I don't know what I think about that. It just stood out to me as really, really strange and interesting. Well, that was going to be my follow-up is why did that, what was it about that being cut that stuck out to you? I know why it stuck out to me because I, well, first off, I didn't know it was there, but because you caught it, I'm curious, tr attempt to unpack that a little bit. Well, I guess, why is Yui doing what he's doing? I don't believe they say how long he's been married to his wife, but he's an old person, so I'd imagine it must be for quite a while. And based on the dialogue exchange between Jessica and Yui, I have to assume that she was captured by the Harkonnens before he even came into the employ of the Atreides family. So I am not, I, it's a very interesting situation because when I was first younger and was going through the story, Yui didn't make any sense to me at all as a character in any of the adaptations or even the original novel. But growing older, I find myself sympathizing with him a lot more. If you were in his situation, what would you do if these horrible people had your wife captive? You didn't know if she was alive or dead, you didn't know what kind of pain and torture they were putting her under. What would you do? Right. I found him sympathetic, too. And if you listen to the previous episodes, which you did, maybe you noticed that I said, I'm surprised that I found him sympathetic because I wouldn't have found a traitor sympathetic in any other context. So Herbert did a good job here. 
And why I found him sympathetic is because, yeah, these guys have his wife, and he doesn't know if he could trust the Duke, right? If the Duke was as close to him as he is to some of his other, uh, you know, guards, maybe Yui can come and say, hey, Duke, crap just hit the fan. They took my wife. But it seems, and it's something interesting that you just mentioned just seconds ago, is when did he come into the employ of the House of Atreides? Was the wife gone before that? Was she gone during that, after that? Because he's told everybody that she was killed. And she was, right? But so is that is that him lying? Or is that him just telling the truth, knowing that she's dead anyway? And is his betrayal of the Duke, in his mind, the only way he can get close to the Emperor to exact revenge? Which kind of is hinted at in the book. And then he fails because the Baron's Mantat murders him. So there's a lot of intrigue there, right? Yeah, if we assume everything Yui is saying is true, then what I've understood is that he doesn't know that his wife, if his wife is alive or dead. And it, I believe there was a line somewhere that was written that, yeah, when on the when he was meeting with the Baron about how the fact that he had gone under the same torture devices only briefly. Like, knowing what kind of pain his wife must be going on was how they broke his conditioning to allow him to right. basically run this sort of a traitorous scheme. Then what he concocts is basically his plan is that he needs to stand in front of the Baron himself to know whether or not his wife is alive or dead. And he can tell just by the way the Baron is acting, just, you know, the way he's carrying himself, the way he's talking to him and addressing him, he knows, like, okay... He has no hold over me. He has no power over me to do anything. That means my wife is dead. That's what I find kind of strange that he he's doing it because he needs to know that she's dead. Like he didn't really I what I understood is he didn't really have any idea or hopes of that. He they would both be leaving it alive or maybe I maybe I'm reading into something that wasn't there. But and I'm thinking about that with hindsight. But that's what it struck to me. And that makes it slightly more complicated too yeah yeah for sure spence what about you you've been quiet for a while what are your thoughts on this ue situation i too found him sympathetic i found myself liking dr yui in spite of his betrayal of the atreides he just found himself in a tough situation i try to put myself in that situation like what would it, you know what would what would i do if i found myself there i'm not married so you know i, I don't really know but I feel like I would want to do everything in my power to to protect my wife. But then again, at the expense of betraying or killing in this instance, someone who you've worked for, someone like like you're probably pretty close with, you've allied yourself with, good friends. That's just such a tough situation. And I don't know if I really know what I would do in, until I was put into that kind of a situation. You know, I'd like to think I would like what what is the right thing to do in that situation do you protect your wife or do you continue to protect your friends and your the, the family that you're working for like the good guys i guess if you want to call it that in this instance um you know how ruthless the the harkonnens are um so do you continue to ally yourself with the atreides or do you actually just try to protect your wife like what what is the the ultimate good or right thing to do in that situation i i guess i don't really i don't really know Right, and I'll add some uh, complexity to that. 
even if you know that, all right, no matter what I do, wife is dead. But if I betray the, the Duke, she's dead quickly. If I don't betray the Duke, Baron, you know, with his proclivities, uh, might do something even horrible. Mm-hmm. And that, that that's pure speculation now. We're outside of Herbert's, uh, Herbert's world. That's my, you know, what goes on in Slava's brain. But moving on from this topic, but speaking about sympathetic characters, what character did you like the best? Did you like the worst? Identify with? It's kind of a three-part question. Let's keep it going with you, Spencer, and then Chris. Nagala, I, I don't know if there was a, a character that I felt like it really resonated with. I guess a character maybe that I liked the most. I found it's hard because this we don't see this character hardly at all, but Paul's little sister, because of how she was I don't, transformed, I guess, in the womb, and then when she was born as like a two-year-old or three-year-old, I mean, she's already speaking on the level of like a 13, 14-year-old. It was just like a super, super interesting character. She was incredibly smart, and the way she was able to manipulate, I think it was the Baron. She told the Baron, like, yeah, I allowed you to capture me. I thought that was Bold words. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was that was really great. Grandfather? Yeah. And I don't even know if the Baron caught that. Herbert makes no reference to, to the Baron recognizing that or anything. But yeah, she she was just, I feel like... It would be fun to see more of her in the story. And maybe, I don't know if she is in, in the future in the other books, but um, to me, she was a fun character that I would like to see more of. I found her intriguing. The Baron couldn't hear her over her over his jowls jiggling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's a thing, isn't it? What about, uh, what about you, Chris? Well, staying on the topic of Aaliyah for a brief moment, one of the things I find interesting about her as a character is at, well not the conception we don't see that in the book what's the the ceremony <laughs> that's not in the serial edition I, th- they allude they allude to it happening some two weeks prior to the events of the story but um, uh, the duke approaches the Jessica. ceremony the ritual yeah where which becomes the mother Romalo yeah when Jessica and Romalo have their they the way that that scene is written about just like being in this empty black gray void and there just being this this spark of light and then there's the two of them and then they realize oh there's this third spark of light the purely like emotional writing of that scene coupled with much later in the story hearing Aaliyah recount that i find i can't necessarily put my thumb on what it is about those two scenes that i find really touching but there's something about what he, how he wrote those that really uh, I just like it. I can't really describe why. There's it's on a purely emotional level. It's nothing necessarily like cool or awesome. It's just there's something there that I really liked a lot. But the character that I think I don't know if I necessarily identified with any of these characters or felt myself personally attached or related or like I am this character. But in terms of characters that I thought were really really cool. I think the top of the list for me is Thufir Hawat, the Mentat for the Atreides and the Duke's Master of Assassins. Mm. And what I think I necessarily found cool about him may just be stuff I made up in my own head that's not actually oh. a part of the story, but just oh. like little hints and bits that are maybe alluded to about him as a person, what his skill set is, because we see pieces of it in that confrontation between Thufir and Jessica. 
but also just the way he's this old man that served this one family for three generations. And he's just a really cool character. When you seen him interact, he interacts with the Fremen and they have a nice interaction there before he's captured. And then when he's captured and working for the Duke, he's still in his mind, kind of plotting like Paul's still alive. I can, uh, kind of work things from this back end here to uh, get things going. And even though he thinks that he's also tied with like, he's so dead set that Jessica is the traitor. Yeah. He's a flawed character, but super awesome. I feel like Chris, you have this appreciation of the older guide, the older Gandalf type, the older Oracle's too strong of a word because I'm thinking about Orev right now, which is a character from our book. Who's this old grizzled, military guy who's retired he lost his whole family and correct me if i'm wrong but i remember you really loving him as a character and going oh yeah this guy's got something to share and i think it's just like a call from your preferences where it's like appreciating Mm. old wisdom that's grizzled and it's just like so well i think i think you might be right i mean in some sense paul doesn't have friends but he has four dads essentially growing up and Thu fears the granddad in terms of age yep. and life experience I suppose that's a good that's a good uh, recognition yeah Jonathan I was just going to ask you if you had like a yeah a favorite character or someone that you resonated with in the story yeah Spencer that's a that's a great question I'd say that I identify with Paul the most and I and I only say that because and I've talked about this a little bit here and there on, on the podcast about like having a birth defect But like this idea of a terrible purpose where like fate and destiny and it's entirely possible that if you're a psychologist and you're listening to this and you're like trying to assess who I am as a person that I've attached myself to a narrative that is, you know, born under a specific star line. And, you know, I have a great calling over my life uh, and that's fine. I accept that. I no problem being being. uh, Did you say psychologist or astrologist? Because. I heard psychologist, and I'm like, this one, what psychologist is into astrology? Well, the psychology part of it would be that I've attached myself to a narrative of, Ah. like, destiny and fate. Right, right, right. Okay. That's the the connection there. Fair point, but I purposefully quoted the stars thing because, like, if you ever played uh, Elder Scrolls or uh, Oblivion or any of those type of big-tier Bethesda games you get to choose a star sign that you're born under, which gives you stats. It's this, it's this call out to destiny. It's this call out to fate, right? Like, and so part of my attachment with a, a Paul type character is like, I, to give meaning and I've quoted young before, but like to give meaning to suffering. And I don't think that that's exactly what Paul's doing, but I think that it's something that you could assert is partly happening because he lives in the tension of like, is this destiny and fate of me being called to be the Messiah or is this, and I also just realized I should pause and say, I don't believe myself to be a Messiah, but I have thought about starting a cult because in Paysglow, I won't <laughs> because I don't think it's ethical, but you know, it, I've, it has crossed my mind if I'm going to be transparent with the audience. So that would be the person that I resonate with for better or worse before I get locked up for thinking <laughs> myself a- <laughs> A, a leader of a messiah cult thing for me it, this has been par for the cur- course with books that jonathan has suggested and this one we both kind of said hey we should do this because dune's coming out now 2024 
uh, so screwed up our marketing campaign. But I've identified with a few female characters in the books that Jonathan suggested, and they were all Sanderson books. Here, I didn't identify with any character, not even the female character, but Cheney stood out as a very interesting person to me. And for me, when she kills the guy that comes to challenge Paul, and Paul's all butthurt about it, and she's like, hey, don't worry about it. Go be, go do Duke stuff. Now anybody that comes to challenge you knows that your girlfriend will kill them. And I was like, that's my girl. I like that. I really like that. And I, I can say that unabashedly without any, you know, uh, complex, I guess is the word. Because I have a wife like that. She's a really cool partner to me. And she might stab you if you come after me. She still has flaws. She uh, has things that she's going through. She's definitely very feminine. But she's not a, a you know, a fainting, uh, what is it, a shrinking violet. Or, you know, she's not clutching her pearls and fainting every time. Um. But this gives us a chance to jump into maybe one of the themes, and I don't know if we'll do them in order as in the document here, but people in nature how are talked about ecology, right? There's the actual scientific part of ecology in, in the book, you know, terraforming the, the planet, and how Paul says, uh, Paul says, how Dune shows how you can be changed by the environment while trying to change that itself. You'll be always affected by the environment. There's even a quote that I also like that I mentioned earlier was God created Arrakis to make men stronger. I'm paraphrasing. But uh let's dive into that for a little bit. Like um and, you know, Cheney is the as the jumping off point. This uh, this kid who grew up in the desert, you know, I'm sure if you take any any girl the same age from the planet the Trades are from, I forget the name. She probably Caledon. have Caledon, less impetus to stab anybody, right, for anything. I would say it's kind of an everlasting conversation of nature versus nurture, even more so when you have an environment. Because you have to, I think in every book everywhere and every person that's ever lived, there is an innate level of, I need to survive. There's a survival mechanism that exists. And so if you're on a harsh planet, like Arrakis, then you will either adapt or die. Those are your options. There is no, as far as I know, there's no third option. Feel free to like jump in on that. But you don't have the joys of comfort when you live in a harsh environment. You go, well, this is just the way that it is. It's like when you bring someone from a third world country to America and they're like, whoa, what is going on? We see this played out in storylines sometimes that like when we were kids of like, I forget the name of the movie, but it's like a knight from the past is brought to the present day. And he's like, what is this witchcraft device that's speaking to me on a wall? And he's like ex experiencing the 21st century from the knowledge of the past. And instead of like understanding it, he is using his current framework of the environment that he grew up in and going, if it's something that I don't understand, it's witchcraft. Right. And so he is bringing his present circumstance. And this is why it's interesting to follow Paul and his family, the Atreides, when they come over to Arrakis because they're like, well, we've been part of the nobility. We've been in a place that has water forever. And so it's just a stark change for them to come to a place that has never seen that before and then have to adapt or die 
rip uh, Duke Atreides. But uh, I think that we all have in our lives different challenges that we have to deal with, be them environmental or just like the the fate that is handed to us. You know, I've just mentioned this a little bit ago. It's like I was born with a birth defect and I that's just something that I have to embrace and deal with and, and watch in specific ways that has has turned me into the person that I am. And I was actually having a conversation with, and you can call it meditation or prayer, but like God last night about my own state of being because like I have to constantly watch my health and like little changes for me like sweating sweating is part of the reason I have kidney stones like that's just the way that my body works and so the environment that my person has to endure in this body that I've been given requires me to make specific choices and changes to survive and then by surviving I have to next choose this idea of well how am I going to categorize and embrace the suffering that I've been given and then use that as a as a formation of the personality that I have and how I want to experience the world. So I don't know if that really answers your question entirely, but I think that it is an inescapable thing to juggle the tension between nature versus nurture, both environmentally and in your in your personhood, is we as this like lump, this brain that's just like pulsating electricity gets to control this human meat bag to make choices that are so deeply philosophical it's mind-boggling pun intended those are a lot of words someone help me <laughs> i uh <laughs> sorry chris you should say that say it so basically god gave jonathan birth defects to make him faithful moadib moadib probably probably <laughs> yeah probably I like it Spencer, what do you think? If I can remember going back to Slava asking about, uh, you know, people, people in nature, ecology, man versus environment, that kind of thing. I find it fascinating that the Fremen are, I think it was Dr. Kynes uh, when he was having his moment in the desert uh, right before he died. He was just remembering all the things that his father was talking to him about. And one of the things was how they are invested in making Arrakis a place a livable place, uh, essentially, I think, you know, the idea of kind of terraforming, but they, um, and he was saying like, yeah, we're not like our children won't see it. Our children's children won't see it. Our grandchildren's children probably won't even see it, but yet they were fighting for this, just this chance to make the world a place that their future generations could call home and be a livable place and not have to worry about water. And it was just, fascinating to see the care and attention that they gave to their environment and then you have someone like the Harkonnens who are there just to abuse the planet and take the resources and use it for personal gain and it was just fascinating to see the contrast between the Fremen and the Harkonnen and then how um, maybe Paul would um, kind of maybe bridge the gap there um, and how he might work to to help the Fremen achieve their goals. Part of me wonders if if Herbert, um, when he was writing that, if he was cautioning us, you know, in our world to just kind of take care of the planet, you know, our resources, um, how we might invest in future generations versus just looking out for ourselves in the now. So that that's one thing that kind of stood out to me uh, as well in this in this section, in this kind of idea of taking care of our environment. Kinds is a, yeah, I do think Kinds is rather interest a rather interesting character 
And that scene where he's kind of having that hallucination of a memory or non-existent. I don't know if it's a memory or a non-existent conversation, but he's talking to his father who's dead. <laughs> I And on a brief aside, there's that one line where he says, why aren't you helping? Or why, why won't you shut up? Can't you see I'm dying? <laughs> yep. <laughs> that line just thrown in the middle of it there. But how what I thought was interesting with that particular chapter is we essentially see that Kynes and his father and I have it's been a while since I read the append the appropriate appendice. I think maybe even his grandfather all essentially had the plan of doing what Paul essentially comes in and does and co-ops for himself, essentially. And so Kynes and his uh, forefathers have essentially laid the groundwork in a religious sense of incorporating like the people's religion into their caring for the planet and giving them a vision and a hope and a dream of like this hell, for lack of a better way, can be made into heaven by, you know, generations and generations and generations of investment into the future this is this is for my notes this is me extrapolating it out of the text kynes was in it for the long run and you mentioned this in some of your notes spencer that the fremen are in it for the long run right yep and so kynes wa- was using the religion and maybe this is a good way into transitioning it into religion and control kynes was using the fremen religion to instill in them if you will a fervor or a desire or a commitment or all three to do this thing which is terraforming the planet for the next gener how many generations, right? And even one of the Fremen says that we'll, you know, our grandchildren might not see this, but maybe their great great grandchildren will see it. So, Kynes was all about using the worldview, the religion of the Fremen, their commitment to the planet, their makeup to use all that to transform the planet. It reminds me of something that. Yui said in the conversation with Jessica, and it's just a simple question, are you sure that the soil is hostile and that this family's been uprooted and planted here? And it seems in so many ways like the fervor and forward vision that Kynes gave has, in a sense, planted Paul into actually very fertile soil, despite it being a barren desert. So I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but I think that that speaks closely to this quote that I had thought about earlier from the book where Moadib says, there should be a science of discontentment. People need hard times to develop psychic muscles. And when you talk about being planted in an environment that is really fertile soil, I think that that makes us, well, how do I want to say this? I think that that's true for everyone. I think that we watch inspirational videos online of people who overcome suffering in a way that is inspiring and we all have the power and potential of free will to tap into and use and assert against the environment that we're put in to really find a way to flourish regardless of birth defects or bad parenting or abusive you know toxic upbringings or whatever like we really get to affect the environment that we are put into and we do have the power to change the world if we simply will embrace the suck and embrace the suffering of the arrakis that is our lives 
whatever your flavor is. It doesn't have to be a dune, you know, uh, a desert planet. But I think that that does play into using what's in front of you. And for Paul, it was religion and control. He he tapped into this thing. He felt the fate, and he took the cards that he was dealt, and he went, "Well, I'm in this situation. My father's dead. We're we're on the run, and I think I can use this piece in front of me to become what I need to become." And I don't think he was ever really convinced on the before the time jump. And I think I would probably assert that during the time jump, he kind of came to a realization like, no, I guess I am the Messiah figure, which I think would be interesting to unpack a little more from his character's point of view in this time jump. Regardless, he took what was in front of him, which was a religion of these people. And I think, was it Kynes who said like this, this religion existed before they ever arrived. And so he was kind of like postulating that it was commandeered by the Bene Gesserit, right? Is that covered in the book somewhere? I'm, I'm remembering. I don't recall Kynes ever saying anything like that no. specifically, but I know that that is Somebody said something it. that's kind of hinted at, I think, in the story is that the thousands of years ago, the Bene Gesserit sort of like implanted some legends into and kind of basically, I mean, perverted, corrupted, skewed, put a little bit of a left turn into what would have been the progression of that religion. And so probably some combination of the two, I know Jessica particularly picked up on the manipulator of religions, having been there on Arrakis and having done work there. Yeah. And then they found a way to assimilate that religion into working for them. But even more so, it, it I think it posed questions where it's like they had a reverend mother, mother before the Bene Gesserit like showed up from our understanding. And so it's like, you can affect the environment around you to a point, but it still will have deep roots in wherever it started from. Yeah, that's right. Because we talked about this, Jonathan, where Paul is looking at this religion and saying, all right, I'm going to use it to these ends. And nothing in his character, at least to me, seems like he's exploiting these people. Maybe I'm sure somebody can make an argument for it. But it seems that he's going, okay, I need to do this because I want to prevent the jihad. The way I prevent the jihad is by adopting this messiah uh, messiahship and leading these people. Jessica's looking at it going like, oh, wow, we're manipulating the crap out of these people, but we're also being affected, and I'm paraphrasing, but we're also being affected by this religion because look at my son. He's embraced it. He is playing the role. So what I saw... As interesting, that was re recalibrated a little bit this morning when I was watching a Herbert interview and promoting his book, and this was like an interview from the eighties, I think, based on the based on the video. Is he said something like this: uh, "Leaders, especially charismatic ones, have the ability to amplify mistakes, and their decisions are often followed blindly by their followers." And this is what Paul is afraid of, right? Their blind adherence to authority can lead to the consolidation of power structures, which may eventually fall into the hands of corruptible individuals. And Herbert goes on to say, the old adage, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, is to be questioned. He even goes on to say that he doesn't believe it. Rather, he suggests that the power merely attracts those who are susceptible to corruption. 
And I think that right there is Baron Harkonnen, dude. Like, if he didn't have the power, he would just be a fat little rapey guy somewhere in a corner of, you know. <laughs> He's not little. That's covered in the book. Didn't, right. you, didn't you hear how his jowls jiggled? And Well, his jowls would be jiggling somewhere in a less important place than the the position he holds, right? And Sadler, I'm going to give a shout out to a guy because I always like to give YouTubers more views. I forget his first name, but it's Dr. Sadler. He's a, a professor of philosophy at Wisconsin. I forget which university. But he has a YouTube channel. It's fantastic. This is his uh, his uh, assessment. One of the significant things in Dune, he says, is religion. Portraying it as a force that can empower exploit. Some view religion as a means to manipulate the masses. Harkonnens probably, Benny Jesuits to a degree. While others see it as a way to find transcendent meaning in life. The interplay between religion, politics, and social structures creates a rich tapestry within the Dune universe, according to Dr. Sadler. So I, I, that's one thing that really stood out to me, too, in this book. And that's why in the previous episodes, you guys heard me keep coming back to this theme, because I think Herbert does it well. He's not foaming at the mouth saying all religion is the opiate for the masses and sh- shitting on religion, but he presents it as something that does help you interact with the transcendence, transcendent things in this universe, but very adequately. He also presents how it can be abused in many ways, and the struggle that even the leaders who find themselves in these positions, the the back and forth, I'm at a loss for words, the internal struggle, there you go, the internal struggle that they have while they're in that uh, in that position. Yeah, uh, something that you said said a minute ago, uh, Slava, talking about um, how fo- followers following blindly. I've, I just come to think of like our current political structure here <laughs> in America, and uh, I won't get onto either side, but I, I but I feel like I see it on both sides, where you just kind of have this oh, Republican yeah. and Democrat like followers following blindly, and just because they they adhere to like. I don't know, they they somehow, like, find their identity in that. And so they refuse to, like, change. And it's just easier to to follow something blindly, I think, than it is to do your own investigative research to kind of figure out where you stand on something and change. People don't really like change. And so uh, it's just easier to follow blindly sometimes. So when you're talking about people following blindly, that's just kind of like something that popped into my head. And that's a political structure, not necessarily religious, as as we maybe see on on Arrakis, um, with the Fremen and all that. But just yeah, right. yeah I found that. No, but I think it's a yeah, I think it's a worldview thing. And I, you you guys, if you listen to any of the episodes, you guys here and the the audience, I keep mentioning it. It will, it shapes the way you operate and view your world, view the world, and how you act within it. And not being able to articulate your own worldview will make you a sheep. Whether you're mm. the Democrat sheep or the Republican sheep, and you know me, a pox in both your houses. But in order to land this plane, because we've been at it for an hour and a half, and I want to talk really, really quickly about fate versus free will, and then you know we'll wind down and do a little, uh, do something fun in the in this episode. It seems that Paul can't escape this jihad, right? A, no matter what he does, he affects it in a little bit here and there, and he sees different futures. He even sees futures where he's dead. He sees futures where he's not dead, but then jihad is coming. So this interplay between fate and free will is very interesting. And I'm going to paraphrase Sadler again for this, and maybe we can do 
a minute each response to Sadler's, uh, uh, Sadler's quote here. The complex themes of Dune touch on existential concerns about relevance and purpose. Characters within the universe grapple with their roles, seeking meaning and significance in their actions. The decisions they make are influenced by power, ambition, their beliefs, and various religions, etc., etc. This exploration of purpose adds depth to the characters and emphasizes the human need for meaning and direction in life. And let's start with you, Chris. Then we'll work to Spencer, John, and then we'll close it out. Decisions they make are influenced by power, ambition, and their beliefs in various religions. In a most general sense, I suppose I agree with pretty much everything that he says. What, in regards to the, in the context of fate versus free will, though, I suppose it's not necessarily a topic that I put much weight or stock into mm-hmm. because I'm, I guess I'm very much a pragmatist in a lot of sense. I guess that unless you can see the future, you don't know what it could be or what it will be. So it's kind of, it seems somewhat pointless to debate from my perspective. So my own worldview, I suppose, limits my own ability to engage with the subject. I challenge that. that. No, no, no. I want to challenge that real quick. So you said you don't, uh, what the what the future could be, and I would say, well, the future could be whatever you make it, right? Like, which gets into the free will bit. It doesn't address fate at all. But you know, I think I see the way you're phrasing it now a bit better. Now, yeah, I mean, you have the ability to do whatever it is you choose to do I, within the meet within your own means, and whatever those means are are essentially something only you know. So, I mean, I guess maybe I was putting my I was putting a lot of weight on the fate aspect of that, because now in the sense of a the science fiction world that Paul's in, he can see the future and he feels kind of bound to it and he's tried to affect it, but he's still progressing towards that. And there's still like a greater end that is going to happen no matter what he does. He can make tiny twists. He can he can go with the flow, but he can't fight against it. (laughs) I believe there was a something that somebody had said. I think it was oh, it was um, Thufir Hawat that had one of the first rules of Mentat is that you can't change the course of a thing. You have to join it and become a part of it in order to influence it. But even becoming a part mm-hmm. of it and in trying to influence it, he's still kind of bound to the overall course that it's going. But again, this is this a story, <laughs> so. Maybe I'm missing something greater you're trying to uh, allude to. I mean, I have my own ideas of what the future will bring, uh, but if I start spouting all of them, people I, will think I'm a crazy, uh, a crazy psychopath. You know, so there's, you know, Jonathan might think he's Paul. Well, you're in good Wadi, company, but <laughs> you're in good company. I'm, I'm trying to start a call. I mean, so you know, might as well just let it all out here. Yeah. Well, to. Uh... To take a, what might say the coward's way out, but I don't think it is. I kind of am on both of your sides. Um, I'm Coward. more of a pragmatist when it comes to this stuff, even as somebody who, you know, believes in, in God and something outside of, you know, let's call it the transcendental, right? The immaterial. I still think that your free will is bound by your the context, the means, 
who you are as a person, right? All human beings will do what naturally comes to them. And they are free to act those things out. But to disagree with Jonathan, I don't think you can change the world or do whatever the hell you want. Here's my question. Let's end with this. Did Frank Herbert do a good job of exploring what Sadler says he does? Because Sadler's one guy. And yes, he's a you know literary guy and he's a philosopher, but Sadler's one guy. So he says that the whole fate versus free will theme in the book is Herbert exploring humans needing meaning and direction in life. Did you guys get that from when you were reading the book? Or is Sadler completely off pace here? Or is he right and you're you're hearing it for the first time? I didn't pick up on any of that specifically when I was reading it. Yeah, neither did I. I thought it was interesting when I heard Sadler say it this morning when I was listening to it, so I put it in there as a as a question talking slash talking point. But I didn't either. Yeah, I don't know if I really did. Maybe the one character that I saw wrestle with it is Paul, just because he can see the future. And I think, I feel like I see him wrestling with his own fate, especially when he um, sees the jihads under his name or his banner. Um, and he's working to try to avoid that. But I guess I don't really see that with, with any of the other characters really wrestling with their their fates or their you know, free will versus fate idea. Yeah, I agree with Spencer on this. The only one who really sticks out to me that wrestled between fate and free will would be Paul. I think that Jessica would be the secondary one because of being a Bene Gesserit. But I think that you could make an argument, albeit watered down, that the Duke understood there was kind of a fate at play as well as his free will to mm-hmm. choose to go to Arrakis instead of fight a war with the Emperor. But uh, that said, I want to go back to something that Slava said where it's like, you disagree with me, uh, and I want to quote the great Gandalf here, that all we have to decide is to do with the time that is, all we have to do is to decide what to do with the time that is given to us. Um, so, yeah, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow, but um, I think that you even undercut yourself where it's like, well, it's your duty to try. You might not achieve it, and that's a different conversation, but you, it is your duty to try. Um, but I think most of us are too busy being comfortable. Uh, I won't I won't stand on this uh, soapbox that I always stand on. It's the same soapbox. It just has different words <laughs> because we're we're wrapping up here. I want to shift gears real quick because something that Chris said earlier when he was talking about the video games, why have they, and I want to pose this to you guys, I want to know what you think, why have they not taken this intellectual property, this IP, Dune, and run with it? I mean, they're making the movie now, which is good, and previously they ran with it, it sounds like, which was news to me. But it seems like it's not getting the love that other IPs get, like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and Pokemon. And like this IP has not really gotten a lot of attention since when was the last movie out, Chris? Um, The 60s or something like that or the 80s, the 80s. So it's been like Um, 50 years. The one before the Villeneuve version coming now. Yeah. Frank Herbert, I want to say, was that 1987? That sounds right. So, like, this thing sat dormant for 40, we'll call it 40 years. Just an untouched intellectual property that people know, respect, and love. And they just haven't done anything with it. Why? I don't know if uh, I have a good answer to this, but I I just wonder if they don't want to maybe ruin it. So, like, with Sanderson, he's he's been in talks with, like, film companies or whatever, but he's super picky about wanting his stuff to be 
adapted well uh, onto screen and making sure it's correct and right. I have no idea, but maybe maybe that's one reason. Like whoever whoever owns um, the Dune rights, maybe they are just maybe you don't want it adapted any further than it's already been. Um, I, I don't know. That's just my my guess. I could be completely in left field for that. But what do you think, Slav? Yeah, I don't have a good answer either. I haven't watched the old Dune. I've seen clips of it. The graphics. I mean, everything ages poorly, right? But what I read about it was some of the graphics are so atrocious, even by 1987 standards, <laughs> that David Lynch refuses to talk about this movie, right? He's like, nope, that didn't happen. I was either, I was drunk. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember doing this movie. And uh, so maybe that added to the to the, the, the time that's spent there. Like, we don't want to touch this because the people will think about that. Maybe it's the rights issue. So I don't have a good answer, but I'll tell you this. I watched the first movie and I was like, oh, wow, this is actually a decent movie. <laughs> and then when I read the book, I was like, oh, the that the adaptation isn't that bad. Mm-hmm. It's actually a pretty decent adaptation. Now I'm looking forward to part two. Why it do just, you think? Did you, did you find something online? No, it just, like, these companies are always interested in making money. And I, I think that the, you know, the thing that was asserted earlier from Spencer is like, well, maybe the person who owns the, the rights is just, like, not interested in, in giving it out. The thing is, though, the reason that Lord of the Rings was adapted for Magic Cards right now, why Amazon is making a version of it, is because copyright law eventually dictates that if you don't use your intellectual property, it becomes public domain. And I'm paraphrasing, but these entities don't want to make their stuff become public domain, so they're like, they'll just produce garbage sometimes just so that it's being produced. So I'm just curious because this is something that could make them a lot of money even if they didn't follow the books at all. It's like, just take the story and run with it. Like, make it your own. So, just curious. Anyway, I don't have a direct answer, but it's an assumption from what little I understand is that. So there are the original six books that Herbert wrote, and then his, I believe the rights were then transferred to his son, who has then, and I don't know how, I believe it's largely a rights thing. I don't know how derivative sequels kind of play into... Yeah, neither do I copyright ownership and but there have been continued prequels and sequels I, there's i think there's 18 19 20 i don't know how many books have come out after frank herbert's worked on it so there is work being done with the franchise itself it's not in maybe the popular easily mass marketed digestible mediums though got it that makes sense if I may propose a soundbite. There are a million and one things that could be discussed on just this novel alone in the franchise, and you could spend decades talking about so many minute details to the greater grand picture. So there are so many things that weren't discussed that could have been, but you know, there's only so many hours in the day and so many minutes in a podcast. I missed all that, Chris. Can you repeat that for me? No. Okay. Uh, Slava, can you pull up the last year Sorry, I'm back. of the when it, when the last year of the books was published? I'm picking up where we left off. The last year the books were published. The I most don't... recent book, whatever whatever year the the most recent book was published for the Dune series, because we were talking about copyright. Because I don't know what it was. It looks like 2022. No, last year. Oh wow. Yeah, last year. The Sands of Dune. Oh, is it not? 
Heir of Caledon? Oh, on Google Books, it's Sands of Dune. Dune franchise. Let's go to Wikipedia. Dune franchise. Uh, the Heir of Caledon, according to Wikipedia. 2022. Interesting. So they're still they're still making these books. Okay, so they, they don't have any sort of copyright time frame running if the assumption can be made that like if you put out something else that's in world per se or in brand that it just keeps like starting fresh that's interesting anyway there's just a side quest that i wanted to go down real quick well here's the interesting side to your side quest there have been one two three four five six seven with the seventh one's forthcoming dune video games forthcoming wait when what yep 2023, which we're in the middle of, Dune Awakening. Last year, Dune Spice Wars came out. Where? I Shiro hear... Games. Okay. Yeah, neither have I. I remembered hearing about a game called Spice Wars, but I've done absolutely no looking into it at all. I've just heard that it's a thing that is going to exist. Yeah, and 1992 is when Cryo Interactive uh, published that game. Hmm. The first Dune. Interesting. I would be curious to play one of them in in like old age if you will yeah why not get a let's play going i don't have time for that i'm trying to work on my mba all right so how are we ending this thing well i want to say that i want to thank you for having me on there's you know from there's the smallest minute details that we could go into or the large macroscopic happenings across the universe and the implications or the deeper themes about a particular moment character interactions there's so much that can be talked about but there's only so many hours in the day and so many minutes in a podcast, and it, you could spend decades talking about it all. Decades. All right, Chris is signed up for decades. Spence, you in for decades? Uh, I, mm, it sounds intriguing, but uh, I've got other things to do, <laughs> unfortunately. Spence. Spencer goes back to the Cosmere. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. you and me, Chris, because Jonathan has an MBA to do, and okay. Spence just bowed out. So, <laughs> All right, well, we, we can discuss doing a... Just the two of us. Some a sub podcast spun off from the the <laughs> podcast here. I like it, but we like to have some fun when we end these episodes as best as we can. So, I a question came to me, and we did this back when we did the wish episode about the monkey's paw. If you guys had to terraform this planet, and it's kind of like an RTS, right? Like, um, shoot, I mean, I'm trying to think of that Blizzard game, space something, Starcraft. Starcraft. Thank you. I was like space, whatever. Anyway, if you had to terraform. A planet like Arrakis or a planet... No, let's just stick with Arrakis. Just like stay on brand here, Jonathan. All right. If you had to terraform a planet, how would you go about it? Like based on the details that were given and you're the replacement for... The Duke didn't get sent to Arrakis. You're a noble family who's sent over there who isn't necessarily in the political intrigue. Like the Baron is... Baron Harkonnen is still trying to fight Duke Atreides. And so they're not necessarily fighting over Arrakis. You're just like the stand-in or surrogate family that has to go to Arrakis. What are you going to do? What are you going to try and do? Spencer, you're up first because I'm taking this from a quote that you wrote down about the idea of working to terraform a planet in sci-fi. I said I like the idea. I didn't say how I would do it. Um, right. And so I'm, I'm forcing <laughs> you to get creative. Well, I guess something that comes to mind is the idea of having machines do your work for you. So I would maybe challenge that and develop machines or tools that could help me terraform a planet. One, because I am not 
creative enough to terraform a planet or figure out how to do it. So I would try to maybe develop a machine that could help me out. Yeah, I guess that that's what that's what I got there. We're get, getting back into using AI to our advantage. <laughs> and the, the Butlerian Jihad condemns you. <laughs> uh, never said I wanted to. I would take a page out of the RTS manual that uh, Jonathan was proposing and uh, do a, uh, how would you just describe? I would do a crossover, the biggest crossover in history, Command and Conquer with Dune. I would uh, get an alien, a, uh, alien a substance of tiberium to do the terraforming for me <laughs> oh good is that your is that your full answer chris that's it that's your you don't that, want to go into details mo- about changing the economy no, or no more no more detail being a you dictator know, there, there are some parallels about a about a messiah and a warrior religion and all that yeah. sort of stuff yeah. mixed in there <laughs> fair so. enough jonathan what would you do uh how would you terraform a planet well being the person that i am i would probably zip into this space i would start bringing upheaval to the economy that's there and then i would start trying to empower mom and pop shop businesses to make like spice candies and additional products that we could sell to other nations to increase our gdp i'm just like tapping into my full mba here (laughs) we would increase our exports and um, then we would gather the finances and we would build the um <laughs> we would build the economy that is arrakis and then eventually we'd create an empire and then we'd overthrow the sardicans because i don't have anything better to do with my time so get a lot of money classic jew and then spend that money to own not just our planet but the other planets by becoming emperor i might have a god complex all right <laughs> Well, as I mentioned before we started recording, I think I would go the old uh, exploit the natives with uh, their religion and uh, take over as a messiah head figure. I know it's kind of a cop out, but that's that's honestly my answer. How else will you do it? To Spencer and Chris, do you think people would follow Slava as a messiah figure? Because I don't think he's got the charisma for it. I think he'd get too fed up and angry with the first person who challenged him and he'd like kill a person. To <laughs> you know me so well. John. Well, that's why you—that's why you find someone to be your prophet, and then you can just be the guy in the background controlling the prophet. Hey, Spencer. Jonathan, after you're done with your MBA, you want to be a prophet? <laughs> What's that line that you wrote one time, Chris? I'm not a prophet, but I'm here to profit. <laughs> Was that me that wrote that? I'm pretty sure somebody far smarter than me is the one who uh, first penned that phrase. Were they? I don't remember. I I thought it was you. Anyway, we're unraveling here, but I like it. I um I hope that you guys had fun on this episode on Arrakis. We are inviting you to follow our Spotify. And if you are so inclined, tell us what you thought of the book in the comments on Spotify or our socials. Until next time, continue side questing? Great. This is going to make the episode because Slava's just going to laugh. Until until you hit a roadblock on your main quest. uh... (laughs) Continue questing. people. No, no. You fail. All right. Fail that skill check for the main quest. Come back to the side quest and grind. Come back and grind it out. I like that. Continue to grind it out, people. Just think about the Baron and his jowls. (laughs) Okay. Goodbye. 